on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. When I'm choosing a jury, I'm looking for as many data points as possible about who these individuals are. That's why I'm studying their body language, their eye contact, what book they've brought to read in court. And in my mind, social media is just another data point. But at the same time, I try to apply a good dose of humility when it comes to my ability to really understand a juror. Uh, I think there's a lot of hubris and ego that's involved in our profession, and we credit ourselves with this preternatural ability to read juries based on really just anecdotal experiences or what our guts are telling us. But at the end of the day, it, it feels like a crapshoot. So if I am going to look at social media, and I do sometimes, the main thing I'm looking for is whether this person has espoused extremist viewpoints. Because as a prosecutor, I'm looking for folks who have a good deal of common sense and are frankly somewhat normal. I want to be able to engage their sense of what's reasonable. So if they hold extremist viewpoints in either direction, on the right, on the left, they're probably not gonna be a good fit for my jury. That was Ram Wong, and this is May the Record Reflect. Happy holidays, and welcome to episode 37 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan. I'm pleased to introduce Ram Wong, our guest today. You may not know his name just yet, but you'll probably remember having heard about a case he prosecuted a few years ago. Ram is a senior deputy prosecuting attorney for King County in Seattle, Washington. His case, State of Washington v. Elizabeth Hokawana, made national news in part because it involved what might have been the fake news era's first crime of political violence that ended up in a court of law. In this episode, Ram talks about the impact he says conspiracy theories, fake news, and explicit bias had on the outcome of his case, and he shares his thoughts about social media, attention span, exhibits and experts, and, of course, jury selection. Here's our interview. So, Ram Wong, you have written a case file, a criminal case file for Nita called State versus Hodgman. And the interesting thing about this case is that it talks about fake news and its impact on trials and the challenges that dealing with conspiracy theories and so-called fake news will pose to trial attorneys on both sides of the case. What's interesting also is that this case was literally news. It was torn from the headlines, just like some of our other NIDA case files. It's based on a case that actually happened, and you were the lead prosecutor of it. You have very intimate knowledge of this case. So just to start talking about it, um, there was a shooting in Seattle on the University of Washington campus in the evening of Inauguration Day in 2017. There were crowds that showed up to protest and to attend a speech given by alt-right provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos, and law enforcement unfortunately had not separated the two groups of protesters um, with an open channel of space between them to kind of 
buffer tempers. And so, of course, face-to-face confrontation, antagonism happened, and it ended in violence with an Antifa protester being shot by a woman named Elizabeth Hokoana, who was lawfully carrying a concealed weapon, but unlawfully carrying it on the UW campus. She claimed self-defense. The Antifa protester who was shot um, allegedly pulled a knife on and she felt like her husband's life was threatened. Joshua Dukes was critically injured. He did not cooperate with prosecutors. He said that he was skeptical of the American system of justice, and he refused to testify at trial. All very unusual. And what I remember about being a Seattle resident at the time was this whole event felt like it was a harbinger of political violence yet to come. It was a very scary and distressing time for Seattle, and I think for a lot of Americans. So that's just kind of the lay of the land with this case. I wonder if now I could turn it over to you, Rom, to talk just a little bit about the charges that were brought against Elizabeth and Mark Kokawana and give some details or context about the fake news angle to this case. This trial concerned one of the first acts of political violence of the Donald Trump era. You're right, Marcy. It happened on the night of Donald Trump's inauguration, January 20th, 2017. And unfortunately, it foreshadowed much of the disinformation and extremism and tribalism that we've seen in our country ever since, culminating in the January 6th insurrection. So let me step back and tell you a bit more about the case. The defendant, Elizabeth Hokawana, was a young woman who attended this alt-right rally on the UW campus with her husband. And the event quickly devolved into chaos. You had Antifa, this left-wing extremist group, marching onto campus, wearing these black masks and shouting anti-Trump slogans. And the police remained on the sidelines, and they did little to keep the two sides apart. Clearly, this event was going to be a tinderbox, and my theory of the case was the defendant and her husband were intent on lighting the match. So here's what happened. A couple hours hours into the event, the defendant's husband began firing this orange pepper spray at a group of Antifa activists. And that's when my victim, and I'll call him my victim, just for shorthand for purposes of this conversation, he's this anarchist, probably an Antifa member, and he's dressed in a motorcycle jacket. He's got this shaved head, an anarchist tattoo on his neck. Well, he runs up and he grabs the defendant's husband and tries to get that pepper spray away. And they begin grappling over the pepper spray pretty violently. And then that's when the defendant reached behind her back for this Glock handgun that she, for some reason, brought to the rally, and she fired a single hollow-point bullet into the victim's abdomen, blowing up his insides and nearly killing him. Now, by this point, I have been trying criminal cases for nearly a decade in Seattle, and I knew that this would probably be one of my toughest ones. For one thing, I thought the defendant had at least a colorable argument that this was defense of others, that this was a lawful use of force. In fact, she claimed that she saw a knife in the victim's hand, a knife, by the way, that was not seen on the video recordings of the altercation. No one else saw it. Um, But at the very least, she could argue this to the jury. And a second challenge, as you mentioned, was my victim 
was refusing to testify, and my office ultimately made the decision not to compel his testimony. But I think that was actually helpful to the case because without having the victim there, we were able to keep the attention focused entirely on the defendant and her actions. And the jury learned a lot about who she was. Um, she was a young woman who had immersed herself in this online world of extremism and misinformation, fake news. And at least according to my theory of the case, this led to a warped worldview that really fueled her desire to provoke altercations at the event and to use violence under the guise of self-defense, which unfortunately is one of the hallmarks uh, of a lot of the right-wing vigilante groups that have risen up in the years since. So we had all these Facebook messages between her and her husband and some other people talking about going full melee at the event, uh, celebrating violence. And so using this social media, we were able to craft a story, a narrative about how while this defendant may genuinely have feared the victim, her fear was not reasonable because it was born out of this warped worldview of her political opponents. So this trial went on for five weeks, uh, and ultimately the jury uh, spent eight days deliberating. They spent so much time deliberating that I was even able to get away for a three-day weekend and attend a music festival, and I even completed a whole nother trial while they were deliberating. Uh, but eventually the jury came back with a hung verdict of, not a hung verdict, a hung jury of nine to three to convict. So a mistrial. And what was the reason for that? Well, I should be clear from the outset that this trial very well could have ended in a mistrial, even without politics and conspiracy theories playing a role, because the law around self-defense and defense of others is so protective of defendants. So I knew I faced an uphill climb. But what concerned me about this case, and I think contributed to the fact that we had this split jury of nine to three to convict, was that political biases and conspiracy theories really consumed the jury's deliberations. And the reason I know that is a week after the trial ended, one of the jurors emailed me offering to debrief me on how the deliberations went. Uh, and she knew that we were interested in possibly retrying the case, so she wanted to give me some insight into how their discussions went down. And she told me that apparently the main holdout against a conviction was an avowed Trump supporter who, the second he got into the room to deliberate, he sat down at the table and he announced that there was no way he was going to ruin a woman's life because she shot an anarchist who, in his words, probably deserved it anyway. So, you know, that statement really encapsulated my experience in this case because it illustrated this really intense tribalism that we're experiencing in this country where we demonize and dehumanize the other side. And it also highlights how easy it is to believe falsehoods when they support our, our perspectives or support our pre existing attitudes or how it is that we feel about things. So, yeah, ultimately, uh, he was able to convince these two other jurors to really, in my mind, put partisan politics ahead of the facts that had been proven in the case. 
So the first time that you had any inkling then that you had some holdouts in the jury were, it was a week after the the mistrial when you received this email from one of the jurors. Is that right? Over the course of deliberations, it became clear that the jury was starting to hit a wall. I mean, the mere fact that they went on for eight days was a pretty good indication uh, that they were having trouble reaching a unanimous verdict. So we would get these notes from the jury saying, hey, what do we do if we can't reach a verdict here? Uh, At no point did they say, we need to throw up our hands. We're not going to get there. They kept working at it. You know, at a certain point, we got a note from one of the jurors saying that she needed to be excused because her doctor said that continuing to deliberate would be bad for her mental health. (laughs) Uh, That's never a good sign. Uh, That doesn't indicate that the jury is really working together and gelling. And then on day six of the deliberations, a curious thing happened. The jury sent out a note to the court and they were asking to re-watch a video that we here in King County show to prospective jurors about unconscious bias. And it's all about recognizing that we, as human beings, hold unconscious biases that we're not aware of, but influence our decision-making. And as I mentioned, the jury wanted to re-watch this video, and that was my first clue that perhaps the jurors were starting to dig in, dig in their heels over their political differences. Uh, so really, at that point, I could see the writing on the wall, and I suspected we probably had a hung jury. Um, but I should say, I don't know that this jury necessarily hung because of unconscious biases. I think really their biases, their political preferences were out there in the open. Uh, I, I think yeah, the hung jury- explicit. It was explicit. That's right. It was red team versus blue team. And somehow the trial became an opportunity for the jurors to plant their flag and decide which side they were on. As you think back on the trial now, and you know which jurors were the ones who were kind of the problem, were there any signs during voir dire that those jurors might be a problem for you later on? The one juror who apparently was the leader of the faction opposing a conviction, I remember questioning him during voir dire, and he talked about growing up in rural Alaska hunting with his family. And I'll tell you, Marcy, that immediately triggered my own stereotypes about who this juror might be. And I wondered Maybe he's a NRA member. He might be hostile to my victim, who was, you know, this left-wing radical. But you know, as trialers, we really have to grapple with these sorts of stereotypes every day in court. The assumptions we have about people and the assumptions that the jury might hold. And at times, it can be really effective as advocates if our good facts kind of match up or reinforce the jury's pre-existing beliefs. But at the same time, as a prosecutor, I'm trying to do justice. And doing justice, in my mind, means ensuring that our courtrooms are open to everyone. And that means not making assumptions about people based on demographics or other characteristics. So ultimately, I checked my stereotypes and I left him on the panel. I I will say I found out after the trial from talking to this one juror that this one 
holdout juror, apparently at the end of deliberations where people were getting really angry with each other and accusing them of not accusing each other of not being open-minded and kind of digging their heels in this one holdout juror was actually blaming me for the fact that this case would end in a mistrial. And he was claiming to his fellow jurors, well, I told the prosecutor, I told Mr. Wong that there was no way I would ever vote to convict the defendant. (laughs) Well, my reaction to that was, I'm pretty sure if he had actually said that during Vardir, I would have taken note and probably not left him on my jury. But those were the sorts of uh, unusual things, let's say, that this juror was saying in the deliberations room something else unusual that he apparently was saying so he was a self-avowed conspiracy theorist he he just was out in the open about that during deliberations and so apparently he had all these kind of kooky ideas about what i myself was doing in the courtroom so for instance i had this one witness he was a bodybuilder and he showed up to court wearing the tiniest little Richard Simmons workout shorts <laughs> that you've ever seen. Okay. So he, <laughs> yeah, You're it was kidding. quite interesting. I, I mean, it was a lesson for me in terms of talking to my witnesses beforehand about appropriate dress in the courtroom. And I actually got yeah. a bit of a scolding from the judge afterwards about this, but you know, he comes into the courtroom, he sits down on the witness stand, he looks down, he realizes he's basically flashing the jury and he (laughs) grabs a sweatshirt and just drapes it across his lap to try to be a little bit more discreet anyway this conspiracy theory jurist or juror was convinced that i had coached this witness to wear those tiny little shorts to distract the jury from my testimony well like any good conspiracy theory that doesn't make a lot of sense but it gives you a sort of flavor of the weirdness that was apparently happening in the jury room. Yeah. So he, it sounds like he must've had some sort of sway over two other jurors who got pulled into uh, hanging the jury. I, I, I think so. It, but you know, Marcy, when you have a case like this, where it's such a close call, your pre-existing biases and your attitudes, even your political leanings are going to play a role. So you know, if you have a case where it's not clear if this is self-defense, it's not clear if the defendant is actually guilty of this crime, I, I do think how you feel about the parties is going to really influence your judgment. And it's so important for us as advocates to pay attention to those attitudes that the jury is probably going to hold. How do they actually feel about the parties? Because so often, we can present all the evidence in the world to them. And what really matters is what the jurors' guts are telling them. Likeability matters so much in these cases where it's a close call. So uh, yes, he seemed to have had a good amount of sway over the other jurors, the other holdouts. But you know, ultimately, this was a tough case. I knew it going in. And sometimes as a prosecutor, even though you know in your bones that you are right and that the law and justice is on your side, sometimes these cases just don't end the way you want them to. Um, but you have to you have to give it to a jury to decide these cases. 
So how much digging into your veneers, social media accounts, or online life can you do to try to identify those types of jurors who might have an intractable bias or are susceptible to fake news? When I'm choosing a jury, I'm looking for as many data points as possible about who these individuals are. That's why I'm studying their body language, their eye contact, what book they've brought to read in court. And in my mind, social media is just another data point. But at the same time, I try to apply a good dose of humility when it comes to my ability to really understand a juror. Uh, I think there's a lot of hubris and ego that's involved in our profession, and we credit ourselves with this preternatural ability to read juries based on really just anecdotal experiences or what our guts are telling us. But at the end of the day, it, it feels like a crapshoot. So if I am going to look at social media, and I do sometimes, the main thing I'm looking for is whether this person has espoused extremist viewpoints. Because as a prosecutor, I'm looking for folks who have a good deal of common sense and are frankly somewhat normal. I want to be able to engage their sense of what's reasonable. So if they hold extremist viewpoints in either direction, on the right, on the left, they're probably not going to be a good fit for my jury. But you know, I say this from the perspective as a prosecutor. If you're a criminal defense attorney, you might want folks who are contrarians or who are skeptical of institutions and norms. These folks, I think, are probably less likely to accept things at face value and therefore could be really good for the defense. So there might be times when I'll bring certain social media to the court's attention if they're really showing strong biases um, that are relevant in my case. But I've never actually done that before, and I've not seen my colleagues do that before. I think it's much better to draw out those biases through questioning rather than bringing the social media to the court's attention, which I think can feel a little unseemly. Right. So what kinds of questions might you ask to kind of pull them, pull out the answers that you're looking for to give you a better sense of whether you want them on the jury panel? I really like to think of voir dire as a process of deselection. The goal of jury selection is not to find all the jurors who are really good for you, because when you do that, you're highlighting folks for the opposition to use their challenges against. So what I'm trying to do is ask deselection questions and to also create a really comfortable environment where people feel good talking. So often you'll see prosecutors asking questions during voir dire like, raise your hand if you believe most police do their jobs properly. Well, when you do that, like I said, you're only highlighting the favorable jurors for the other side. Instead, I want to be asking questions like, who can think of a situation where the police acted improperly? And then once you get one person talking, then you ask them, how does that make you feel about the police? What are your attitudes towards law enforcement and the criminal justice system? And then once you get that one person talking, that makes other jurors feel more comfortable in changing in, in excuse me and sharing their own opinions. And so I'd like to ask another question like, well, who agrees with that? Why do you agree with that? And so by doing that, I'm 
creating this setting where people feel free to offer opinions that they may think as a prosecutor, I may not want to hear. And then I can start bringing people's true attitudes and biases to light. Great. That's very helpful. I know that you've worked both civil and criminal cases. Have you ever noticed that there's a correlation between a civil case versus a criminal case and that kind of willful disregard of evidence by jurors that we're talking about? Do jurors tend to be more biased in one type of case than another that you've noticed? In a criminal case, at least here in Seattle, jurors are pretty good about holding the prosecution's feet to the fire and requiring proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that's because a person's liberty is at stake. And so jurors understand that they need to be cautious. They need to be methodical when it comes to the evidence. They want to make sure that they are getting it right. It can be a different story, I think, in civil cases, where for one thing, it's a much much lower burden of proof. And I think there can be other interests and societal forces at play for the jury. So I think how jurors feel about a case and the parties and their motivations behind their actions, those can really play an outsized role in civil cases. Jurors in a civil case want to render a verdict that is psychologically satisfying and matches their values, their beliefs, and their sense of self. They want to feel good about their vote. So I'll give you an example of this. I was defending a personal injury case earlier this year where a plaintiff slipped and fell boarding a bus. Just based on the facts and the law, I thought I stood a pretty good chance at trial. But as I watched the video of the accident, I saw that there were a good number of Good Samaritans who stopped and helped the plaintiff as he lie writhing on the sidewalk. They brought him blankets, they brought him an umbrella, this being Seattle, it was pouring rain, and they were showing care and sympathy towards him. Whereas my bus driver, who I was defending, appeared a little detached. At no point did he walk up to the plaintiff and make sure he was okay. He was really intent on calling in the accident to dispatch uh, and kind of checking the boxes of what he was supposed to do as a bus driver following an accident. And I realized watching the video of the accident, I knew that the jurors were gonna wanna be on the side of the Good Samaritans. They were gonna wanna help the plaintiff, help him financially if they could. So it was a really good reminder, as I said, that advocates, myself included, we need to tune into how jurors feel about the case, what their guts are telling them, and really try to tailor our presentations around that. So how do you do that in the moment? Um, When you kind of get that sense at trial that things are kind of not going your way, but maybe there's a chance you can still um, redirect or soften their attitudes. So are there maneuvers that um, you recommend giving a whirl at trial? And um, how do you work with empathy? You know, it's, extremely difficult to change a juror's attitudes and beliefs once they've been formed. You're not going to convince a juror of something that contradicts what they already believe to be true. So that's why Vardir is so important. Using these deselection questions that I've been talking about is so important. And when it comes to 
shaping and molding the juror's attitudes, it's essential to get an early start over the course of the trial at shaping the narrative, telling a story in your opening statement where you're framing the issues early. So in your opening statement, you know, you shouldn't be holding back any favorable evidence. You should be laying it all out there for the jury because we know from research of mock jurors and, and real jurors that they start forming their impressions of who did what and who's responsible very early in the case. And there's no going back once those attitudes have been formed. And we can also think about addressing juror attitudes in our closing arguments. You know, I cut my teeth trying domestic violence cases where often victims of abuse acted in very counterintuitive ways, ways that you would not expect unless you've been through abuse yourself. So maybe a victim remains with her abuser or she delays in calling the police or telling anyone what happened. When we have this sort of counterintuitive behavior, this can lead to a disconnect for the jury. They might view the victim harshly. They might judge her, and that can influence how the jury feels about the victim, and that can influence what they do when it comes time to render a verdict. And you mentioned empathy. A, a jury oftentimes feels empathy for defendants in criminal cases. You know, they're sitting in a courtroom with them just feet away for days, weeks on end. The defendant might appear young, sympathetic, disadvantaged. It's not difficult to feel empathy for that person. So as advocates, we have to remain conscientious about how the jury feels about the people involved. And what I like to do is, if I feel like there is an unspoken defense in my case, or there are certain attitudes that are going to play a role in rendering a verdict, I like to call those things out. Because the first step in addressing unconscious bias or even conscious bias is to call it out and to make clear that this could impact decision-making decision during trial. So for instance, in the Hokawana case that we've been talking about, here is this defendant who is a mild-mannered young woman who seemed to have her whole life ahead of her, but for this trial. The jury spent five weeks with her. I could tell you they were not enthusiastic about the prospect of convicting her and maybe sending her to prison. And I was also cognizant of one of the unspoken defenses in the case being that the victim was probably unlikable. And the fact that he did not even bother to come testify in court was another unspoken defense. I'm sure the jury was thinking, well, if this victim can't bother to come here and tell us what happened to him, why should we care? So what I like to do is I, I call these things out. I, I tell the jury, you know, in this Hokawana case, I told them, I don't know what you think about the victim. Maybe you don't like him. Maybe he's not the sort of guy you would want to have dinner with. But remember, who chose to make him a victim? I didn't choose him. The defendant did. This was her choice to pull the trigger. So that's what you do. That's the best thing you can do. You can call out these unconscious biases and hope that the jury is willing to set them aside 
and render a verdict that is supported by the facts and the law. Yeah, so get out there and uh, own the bad facts first. That's right. That's right. So we've been hearing for a long time now that smartphones have made us um, more easily distracted, kind of checked out. They've shortened our attention span. Um, So I wonder what impact our collectively shorter attention spans might have on you as a trial attorney presenting complex concepts and evidence to jurors. Like it seems like there's a special challenge involved when it comes to talking about science, which some people are skeptical about, or math and accounting, which just seems complicated, period, and other things so that they land with the desired effect on your jurors. Yeah. I I mean, the courtroom, if you think about it, is the one place left in the world where you can't have your phone out. You can't have your devices out. You have to sit there as a juror for seven hours straight. You have a lunch break. You have some uh, other breaks, but you have to listen to a talking head speak in your direction and try to make sense and, frankly, to stay awake. (laughs) <laughs> so let, let me let me share something going uh, through withdrawal going through withdrawal and wondering what's going on on your phone and who's posting what on twitter that you're missing out on and try not to feel a fomo around that um i'll tell you something about myself marcy and this is uh something that i used to become embarrassed about and i didn't tell a lot of my friends in law school and that is back in the day when i was in high school and going through college i used to work as a semi-professional magician, (laughs) performing at kids' birthday parties and libraries. And I billed myself as San Diego's number one teenaged magician. Uh, And now I'm Seattle's middle-aged government attorney. (laughs) But, But what I found as an attorney is I am often relying on many of the skills and techniques that I developed as a magician to hold jurors' attention. So for instance, I used to do this trick. It was called the mismade flag. And I would take three small silk handkerchiefs, red, white, and blue. I would put them into an empty bag. And then abracadabra, I would produce an American flag. When I first started performing this trick, I found that I was having trouble holding the kids' attention, especially when I was performing in a big room, like at a library. So I started thinking about how can I make this trick more visual, more interactive. So I started using larger silk scarves that the kids in the back of the room could see. I made my gestures bigger. I learned to modulate my voice to hold attention. I started using techniques like suspense to get people to really tune in to what was going on and want to hear more. And I also wanted to make sure that every kid who went home that day raved to his parents about how much fun they had with the magicians (laughs) so that they would then beg their parents to have me come perform at their birthday party. And so I started making the magic happen in the kids' hands. I would pass out those scarves to three different kids to hold on to so that they could experience the magic themselves. So what does this have to do with trial work, you're asking? Well, as advocates, we can use similar techniques to make our trials more visual and engaging and experiential. So demonstrative exhibits, they should be big, really big, and simple to understand, even colorful. 
We can use our movement in the courtroom to hold or regain attention. So every time a witness steps down from the stand to demonstrate something or to play Vanna White with a demonstrative exhibit, the jury immediately perks up. If we're losing the jury's focus, we can talk louder or softer or build suspense. If in my closing argument or during questioning, I can tell that they're getting a little drowsy, I might stand a little bit closer to the jury box. I'll kind of get into their personal space. Or maybe I'll stand on the other side of the, or I'll stand behind the opposing counsel's table, uh, creating a little bit of a of tension there uh, with me standing so close to opposing counsel or to the defendant. These are all sorts of hacks that we can do in the courtroom to keep the jury engaged and interested in what we're doing. So much of the discussion around holding jurors' attention has to do with creating sophisticated demonstrative exhibits, whether they're reenactments, illustrations, and those can be expensive. They can be time-consuming, but there are things that we can do on our feet to really try to hold their attention. And, you know, folks listening are probably not going to end up being a a top teenage magician, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) using these sorts of techniques, I think, will immediately lift their trial game. Well, you certainly never know where you're going to pick up new trial skills. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> based on your uh, based on experience. Yeah. Do you find that the testimony of experts is helpful or kind of a hindrance to jurors in the post fake news era versus pre fake news? Do you think that jurors are more likely to reject or be skeptical of experts? I don't know that they're more likely. I think jurors have always been somewhat skeptical of experts. And I think we should also acknowledge conspiracy theories and disinformation. They're not exactly new in this country. It's just that they've been given new voice and energy with the rise of social media and political leaders who are willing to fuel them for their own gain. And folks, I think, are more likely to rely on expert opinion when that opinion matches or confirms their existing beliefs and values about something. During the pandemic, I don't think half the country woke up one day and they suddenly stopped believing in science or doctors. Instead, they picked and they chose who to believe based on how they felt about COVID. Was it this truly a public health crisis or was it a hoax designed to hurt the president's reelection chances? So when it comes to trial, an expert opinion can supercharge a juror's existing beliefs and be helpful when the two line up. But when they don't line up, I think it's easy for the jury to ignore expert opinion. So let me give you an example of that. I I told you about the plaintiff who experienced this really traumatic fall boarding my bus. Well, when I showed the video of the accident to my orthopedic experts, They told me that they did not think that there was a mechanism of injury for several of the injuries that the plaintiff claimed were attributed to the fall. And so I thought, that's great. That means I'm going to be able to reduce the amount of damages here and I'll have a verdict that I'm pretty happy with. But I realized as I watched the video of the accident that 
it probably didn't matter so much what the experts said because the first time that the jury watched the video, I knew that they were going to have this visceral reaction to seeing the plaintiff fall because it just looked terrible. He had this nasty impact with the ground and his limbs go flying in all these different directions. And so immediately after watching that video, it would be easy for the jury to think, yeah, this guy got really banged up. And once that belief was set for the jurors early in the case, I knew that no amount of expert opinion was going to convince them otherwise. Just have one last question, and that is um, that this, is a, this was a really high-profile case for you. And because political violence now seems to be part of our daily landscape, um, I wonder if you ever were concerned about physical safety for yourself or for your family during the trial. My main concern was that I might be doxxed. And I don't know if your listeners know what doxing is, but it's the act of revealing someone's home address or other personal information on the internet for malicious purposes. So you can so you can harass them. And doxing was a major factual through line in my case because all the Antifa members who were packed into the rally that night they were wearing these masks over their faces to conceal their identity. And everyone who was at that rally that night seemed to have their cameras out and were filming what was going on. So leading up to the trial, given that it was pretty high profile with gavel-to-gavel coverage by the local news, uh, my wife and I, we made a point of making our social media private and ensuring our contact information couldn't be found online. I did hear from one witness uh, who, a few weeks before the trial, told me that he himself had been doxxed. Uh, he was a journalist for the Southern Poverty Law Center. His name is uh, David Nywert. He's a pretty, pretty prominent writer uh, about extremist groups here in this country. And he was actually at the rally that night. And he reached out to me and alerted me that his home address had actually been published on 8chan, which at the time was an alt-right platform. So yeah, I, I did have some concerns. And I'll say, as a prosecutor, there's always a certain amount of risk that goes with our jobs. But by and large, you know, I think most prosecutors don't fear for their physical safety because there's the sense that you know, your average person is not going to act on a threat. What's concerning now, though, as you mentioned, is with the internet and social media, there's this ability to post anonymously and to rile up like-minded individuals and embolden them. Um, And so that's why I think doxing and harassment of prosecutors and of judges has become so common. You're behind a screen. You feel like there's really nothing to sending out a tweet, uh, sharing someone's home address. And we're, we're really seeing this new level of vitriol aimed at the courts where the decisions of judges aren't accepted for better or worse, but they're instead as seen as you know attacks, politically motivated attacks on certain groups that has to be responded to. It's really one of the biggest challenges and threats that our system is facing at the moment. Well, it's just made it so easy. Because in the past, if you wanted to complain about an article in the newspaper, you would have to sit down and write an actual physical letter to the editor, put a stamp on it, put it in an envelope and and mail it. Um, Now you can just send out a tweet. Um, 
to find out somebody's address and phone number in the past, you'd have to go to the public library and hope that they had the phone book for the city that your target lives in and and then disseminate it, you know, through more labor intensive channels. And now it's just effortless to attack people. What happens when you go to the library and you look up the white pages and the white pages for the person whose contact information uh, you want? You you cool down, right? <laughs> Hopefully your better angels prevail. But if you have this device in your pocket where instantaneously you can express your rage out into the world, you're less likely to pump the brakes and try to cool down uh, before before yeah, blasting this information out into the world. It's it's quite scary. Yeah, that's a very good point. There's no um, pause, no, no quiet moment for reflection before you take action. I want to end off with our new signature sign-off question. And that is, Rom, when was the last time you traveled somewhere new? And what did you do while you were there? My wife and I love to travel. And last fall, we took a boat trip around the Dalmatian coast in Croatia. And every morning, the boat would drop us off on a different island. And we would ride our bikes 40 miles through tiny little villages and along the coastline. And then the boat would come and pick us up from another port. And then we would swim off the back of the boat in the Adriatic Sea. We would gorge ourselves on more delicious food than I care to remember. Uh, and it came right as we were re-emerging from COVID. And it was such a lovely dose of freedom. Trial work can be fun, but travel is even better. So for all your listeners, I highly recommend Croatia. You gotta go. Well, thank you so much, Rom. Thanks for making time for us. It's been a real delight. It's a real honor to be with you today, Marcy. And that brings to a close, not just this episode, but a whole year of them. And we are grateful to have had you along with the podcast in 2022. It would mean so much to us if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at customerservice at nita.org. On behalf of all of us working hard here at Nita to bring this content to you, thanks in advance for your review. I wish you a beautiful and relaxing holiday season, a joyous new year, and the absolute best of luck in the courtroom. See you in January. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.